I'm uh, Pastor Zach, I'm the youth pastor, and uh, we're going through Palm Sunday, so today is, is Palm Sunday, and it's the most important seven days in the history of mankind, and I want to challenge each and every one of you as you go through this week, I want you to spend time just being in awe of who Jesus is. So I'm going to speak today about the triumphal entry, and then on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I'm going to put a a blog post on our website and on our Facebook, just kind of walking us through Jesus' life so we can see and be in awe of who He is. And then on Friday, we'll have a Good Friday service, and Jesus is going to give His life on the cross. And then on Sunday, Jesus will be resurrected. What a powerful week. And all of this, is, this explains why Jesus acted the way He did in His life. I don't know about you, but I'm always reading the Scripture going, why is Jesus always trying to work to, to be under the radar? He's continually telling the people that He performs miracles on to stay quiet about who He is. And this is even from the beginning. Even when Jesus is born, He's making an impact on people's lives. He's stirring people up. Matthew 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And it doesn't stop there. When Jesus is 12, he gets left in Jerusalem like a scene in in Home Alone. And he's hanging out in the temple. And Joseph and Mary, they, they can't find him for some reason. I mean, that's the first place they should have looked. And we read in, in Luke 2, 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. These teachers, these, these rabbis, these highly skilled men in the law of Moses. I mean, these are some important people. They don't just let 12-year-olds sit there and hang out with them, much less be amazed by them. Our Jesus was a prodigy. I mean, in the perfect sense, He is a different kind of king, and we're going to discover that today. And then we think that that it just goes quiet. But I read Luke 2.52, and I see something powerful. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. You see, wherever Jesus goes, whatever Jesus does, People cannot help but be amazed by Him. And either you love Him or you hate Him. But we must not ignore Him. Every human must make a decision about who Jesus is. Ignoring Him must not be the excuse. Ignoring Him is like denying Him. So Jesus is 30 years old and He's starting to make His name known. But He has to be careful. He knows that it's not time yet. I mean, if he starts too soon, all these people, they could use their love and their power and they could force him into being king. And that's not the type of king that he is. And on the other side, the people that hate him. We all know what happens on Friday when people hate him. You see, I really believe that there's only one answer to this question and that's that we should love Jesus. Why do I believe that we should love Jesus? And I read these stories. 
And I can't help but see the empathy that Jesus has for people. I see this man with leprosy. An outcast, a man with leprosy. He, he pleads with Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you make me clean? And then in Mark 1, 41 through 44, Jesus is moved with pity. He stretches out his hand and he, he touches him and he says to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And then Jesus, he sternly challenges him or charges him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. You see, you do not just touch a person with leprosy that makes you unclean. But Jesus has the power over who is clean. Man, you want to stir some things up? Touch a person with leprosy. And then after that, Jesus tells him, do not tell anybody. And so what does this guy do? Verse 45. But he went out and he began to talk freely about it. And he spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But was out in a desolate place. And people were coming to him from every quarter. You see, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, but he held nothing back. This love and compassion that he has for this man and for you and for I. I mean, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Do you really believe that? That's what this Bible says. And it says it because it is truth. And I love how Jesus helps regardless of the outcome. And it happens over and over again. He tells them, not to tell anybody, but yet they do. They cannot contain themselves. Jesus, He wants to heal people physically. That's His heart. But, but more importantly, He wants to hear, heal people spiritually. Our Jesus is a different kind of King. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who though He was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, this is like giving up the Ritz-Carlton to go live under a bridge. And that doesn't even describe it. You see, I do not know a lot of kings that would give up their castle to go dwell with the people. Talk about servanthood. Talk about humility. And today, we're going to contrast the conquests of Alexander the Great and King Jesus. You see, as we look at this prophecy from 500 B.C., the prophet Zechariah, in around 170 years after this prophecy, Alexander would storm and ransack and overtook the, the known world. And he would do it with massive destruction, bloodshed, and war. But in, even in all of this, even in all the war and the bloodshed, God would use this Greek king... And he would use the Greek influence to establish a world that the gospel could go forth. You see, Alexander would change the known world forever. But around 530 years after this prophecy, Jesus would transform the entire world with the greatest act of humility ever seen. And the only blood that he would shed would be his own. And His impact is still felt to this day. I mean, Jesus is alive in hearts everywhere. 
And Alexander is in the history books. So how does this relate to Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry? You see, after Jesus is continually telling those to be quiet, after He performs these miracles, there finally comes a time when Jesus allows the people to shout on high, to give Him the glory that He deserves. Matthew 21, verses 1-10. through Let's read the story. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Number six, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches on the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? Who is this? That's the question that everyone must ask. Who is this Jesus? What type of king is he? And we're going to find out. You see, throughout his life, he's trying to tame the reaction to him. But it is time. It is time to stir people up. It's time to ramp up this plan in order to save the world. And Jesus, he must do something that nobody has ever done before. He will win the battle by losing his life. You see, kings have won and they have lost their life, but I don't know a king that becomes a king when he's dead. And obviously that's going to hold true with Jesus. But Jesus is a different kind of king. And our New Testament is always linking back to the Old Testament prophecies, especially Matthew. I mean, how do you reach the Jews? You prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew 21, 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What prophet? I mean, what prophet? This, this Old Testament scripture, this is a fulfillment that, that Zechariah prophesied. But there's also other scripture that we can look to to understand what it means when he says, Daughter of Zion. Isaiah 62, 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So first of all, Zion is this word for fortification. And then it's linked with Jerusalem and it's expanded to the, to the temple and it expands to mean the people of Israel. God is, is saying, my people, my people who I have a loving, caring, protecting relationship with. He's calling out to him, And I think many of us can relate to that. We would do anything to protect our daughters. We love them and we care for them. So he's saying, Zion, the king is coming to be the salvation 
for the people and to make amends for them. So let's turn back in our Bibles to Zechariah 9, and we're going to be there. And let's start at verse 9 here. It says, Rejoice greatly. And if we knew 1 through 8, we'd understand the significance of that, and we'll get there. But then it says, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in order to understand this prophecy, we must understand verses 1 through 8. And as I read it, I saw that there was this judgment that was carried out on these cities. At the same time, I saw this protection for Israel. Listen to these words, starting at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. So Zechariah, he gets this divine word from God. This, this oracle that he's supposed to write down. And obviously as you read it, you see that he's against Hadrach and Damascus. And then at the same time, you see that he's for the Israelites. And I have to be honest, I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. So I bust out my, my trusty commentaries and I see that this lines up with the conquests of Alexander the Great. And this isn't the first time that, that Alexander the Great is prophesied in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, verse 7 and 8, it talks about these Greek kings... And Zechariah is laying it out in more detail. And Hadrach was this city far north of Israel. And Damascus was the capital city of Syria. And, and Hamath was also this, this Syria city. And then, and then Alexander and them, they marched southwest along the border of the Mediterranean. And they enter into these Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was a, a fortified city, well protected You see, it withstood a five-year attack by the Assyrians and another 13-year siege by the Babylonians. Verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. So Tyre is a a rich city that is protected and it takes security in its walls and its, its wealth. Yet Alexander, he moves in and takes this city in five months. Just like Zechariah predicts. Verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. And she shall be devoured by fire. So basically, Tyre is this, this island city that's protected by water and walls. I mean, wise people. And Alexander, he builds this, this land bridge. Basically because he doesn't have a navy. And it's quite this feat of engineering. He finally gets out to this island. He can't quite overthrow it. So he amasses this huge fleet of ships. And he surrounds the city. And he attacks the city. And finally, he gets into the city and he executes thousands. And Alexander is a brutal king. Destroying everything and everyone in his way. As he leads these armies on top of this massive, furious stallion that he tamed when he was 12 years old. Man, this Alexander is a smart, mean, and daring man. He's exactly the type of powerful king that we envision when we look at history. But he doesn't stop there. He makes his way down to these Philistine cities, and he takes four of the five major cities, which are all around Judah. Zechariah 9, 5 and 7. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. 
Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. So we have Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron and Gaza and and they will be destroyed. And God is is using Alexander in these cities. These cities that worshipped idol, this this blood consumption. And their gods are doing nothing. And they call out to the God of Israel. But yet Alexander still carries out judgment. And then I love verse 8. God says this, Then I'll encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. God's house. Jerusalem. And I read this in a commentary by Warren Wearsby. Listen to it. The night before Alexander and his armies were to arrive at Jerusalem, the high priest had a dream in which God told them to adorn the city. Tell the people to dress in white garments and open the gates to their visitors. The high priest and other priests held the processions dressed in their holy robes. This they did. And Alexander was so impressed that he welcomed them in peace. The high priest told Alexander about Daniel's prophecies concerning him. Alexander even offered sacrifices to God in the temple. Thus the city and the people were spared. So why do I go through this history lesson? You see, God promised that his house would be protected. And that is wonderful. And these prophecies are absolutely amazing, but it's deeper than that. You see, God, He uses Alexander. God uses a pagan king to bring about His plan. His soldiers, they marry the locals, and this Greek culture is ingrained everywhere they go as it spreads throughout the known world, and it unites these world cultures. It's the beginning of when the Romans take over and they establish a government and roads and laws so that the early church could spread the gospel. So we have Alexander, a ruthless king, who helped to spread a loving King Jesus' kingdom. You see, by worldly standards, Alexander was born a king, and Jesus was born a peasant. Alexander was taught by the great Aristotle. Jesus was raised in a small nobody town called Nazareth. And seemed to be taught by no one. Alexander showed vigor and bravery. He had strength and good looks. And Jesus physically was an ordinary person. Alexander was shrewd, ruthless, and a brilliant military leader. Jesus was good, gentle, and brilliant. But he never led an army. In fact, every time an army started to form, he would slip away. And a great example of that is in John 6. I mean, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Verse 15 and 16. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Man, Jesus would not let them make him king. Can you imagine Alexander doing that? Did you know that Alexander never lost a battle? I mean, he built his entire empire on this model that there is nothing impossible to him who will try. But yet, Jesus, 
Jesus' greatest loss, the greatest loss in history, the most evil thing in the history of mankind was a victory for all mankind. Only Jesus can do that. You see, nothing is impossible with God. Our Jesus is a different kind of king. Alexander never raised from the dead. In verse 1 through 8, we see that Alexander ruled with force, brutality, and death. But we will see that Jesus will rule with humility and righteousness and salvation. Alexander rides a massive stallion and Jesus rides a donkey. Verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Our Jesus is a righteous man, a righteous king. And he brings salvation, not oppression. He does it with humility and not pride. He does it with peace and not war. You see, Alexander, Alexander had all of his adversaries killed the moment he became king at 20 years old. And our Jesus, our Jesus washed the feet of the man that was going to betray him. Our Jesus healed the ear of the man that was taking him to be convicted and to hang on a cross. Our Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. We worship a different kind of king. Alexander would die at 33 years old, a little after 13 years after he took reign. And his kingdom would be broken up soon after that with four generals that were prophesied in Daniel also. And 180 years later, the Romans would take over. And Alexander's kingdom was large. It spanned 3,000 miles, roughly the size of the United States. But it holds nothing on our Jesus. You see, Jesus would die at 33, but he would be raised to life. And he would reign as king over the entire world for the rest of eternity. I mean, you can be the greatest stud in the history of mankind. But if you do not raise from the dead, you are nothing. Our Jesus is eternal. He raised from the dead. Man, that is a whole new level of studliness. Our Jesus does not need force. He does not need tyranny. The only thing He destroys is evil, and He does it by giving His own life. He is a different kind of king. Our Jesus rules by setting people free, not by holding them in bondage. Zechariah 9, 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Man, sin is like this pit that there is no water to swim out. You are looking up and you cannot get out of it. Romans 7.23 tells us that we are captive. That we are captive to sin. 
And John 8, 34 says that we are slave to sin. But Jesus, but Jesus, his blood brings about a new covenant, an eternal covenant. Luke twenty two twenty, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Man, Jesus sets us free. My favorite verses, maybe my most favorite verses are in John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Guys, when I was living in bondage, when I was living in this idol worship of money, this awe of Jesus is what set me free. And it's not just that. We're not just free, but but he restores hope back in us. Verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Man, we are no longer prisoners of sin, but we are prisoners of hope, and I will take it. And he will return to us double what we can ever imagine. I mean, think about the greatest hope, and he doubles it. Unimaginable. And not only does he give us salvation and hope and love and peace, but he gives us purpose. And he uses us. Verse 13, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like the warrior's sword. I mean, we can't fathom his greatness, his power. And on that day in Jerusalem, that triumph on the cross, and when he rose again, I mean, how much power is in that, and yet our God chooses to use us. As he defeats and establishes his kingdom. You see, Greece is the world and it uses destruction to gain power, but our Jesus can speak the very creation into existence and he can speak judgment and he can speak love. Our God speaks and things are done. And he gives us the words to speak into people's lives and we can wield it like a warrior's sword as we take on the ways of this world. And we tell them about the power and the love of a different kind of king. King Jesus. But even in all of this, what I find so sad as I read this text is that the people of Jerusalem wanted a king like Alexander and not a king like King Jesus. The greater king. We must not do that. You see, our king can use his words, Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Man, our God, he speaks and there will be judgment. And so if Zechariah 9, 9 through 13 was the first coming of Jesus, then I believe that 14 and 17 will be the second. Verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Where else do you hear this trumpet language? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. You see, I remember when Fawn Cole, and some of you don't know her, but when, when Fawn Cole was in this church for what seemed like forever. 
But when she was fading, I remember going up to Casper and going to the hospital to see her, and I walked in and she was sleeping, and I didn't have the, the heart to wake her up. And I knew that she loved First Thessalonians. In fact, she asked me to, to preach a sermon on it when she was at the when she was at the I went blank. Shepherd of the Valley, I'm sorry. And so I walk in and I see her there sleeping. And as I read, I got to this part in it, and I don't know if it really happened or if I was just seeing it, but I saw this smile and I could see the comfort. The comfort that it gave her. You see, when Jesus returns, then he will be, he already is. I mean, he will be and he already is the conquering hero. And we will no longer need to be quiet. And I challenge us not to be quiet now, to tell anybody. Tell them what we know about this King Jesus, a different kind of King And when Jesus returns, there will be no need for him to die again. No, he comes as a conquering king. The sacrifice is finished. He is our king and he is our protector. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect him. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. This one could be a little confusing, but like the story of David and Goliath, God will use us and we'll be able to take down the enemies with nothing more than stone. Have you ever thought about the story of David and Goliath? You think that he should have been able to take down Goliath with a stone? It's all God. And it will be all God in the end when we stand behind him and he takes them down with the words of his mouth. I mean, they can have nuclear weapons and our stones will defeat them because we have Jesus. We get to be part of this victory because we have Jesus. And then after that, this Holy Spirit will fill us more than we can ever imagine. It'll be like this full basin that never goes dry with this blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And we'll be so full of the Holy Spirit like the horns that were on the altar spread with the sacrifices and the blood. Man, there is no hiding from Jesus now. Not just when He returns, but we must not hide. We must speak loudly and be in awe of Jesus as we proclaim it to the world. Do not hold back. You see, everyone will know and every knee will bow, but how many knees will bow in adoration of our King? God has purposed us and God will use us. And Jesus will bring judgment on day. But unlike Alexander, who loved death and war, our Jesus wants no one to perish, but all to have repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And our Jesus will save those who are His. And as I finish, I want to read 16 and 17 of Zechariah 9. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them. As their flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness, how great is His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish in new wine, the young women. I'm not sure I have to explain this. 
I mean, not only will Jesus bring judgment, but He will bring salvation. He will bring greatness and goodness and beauty as He ushers in His kingdom. And we will no longer have to deal with sorrow or war or pain or death. We will flourish. We will be like the jewels and we will shine on His land. Our Jesus is a different kind of king. He is the greatest king. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the ultimate king. Glory to King Jesus. And forever we will shout His glory and we proclaim it. And we will mean it. Listen to these words, Matthew 21.9, and the crowds that went before Him and that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I think so often I preach up here. And we want application. We want four ways that we can be a better Christian. We want four ways that we can be a better you. But how about we just be in awe of Jesus? If we're just in awe of Jesus, that's the application that we need. No other application can come until we are in complete awe of the greater King, a different kind of King. So I challenge you this week to spend this week in the Scripture walking with Jesus Christ this last week, the most important week in the history of mankind, just being in awe of who Jesus is. And let Him transform you. Jesus does something when He gets inside of here. And when He gets inside of you, you are a different person because of who He is. And you have the power that He has. And He purposely uses you to reach people for His kingdom. challenge us to just be in awe of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you. I thank you that you even use people like Alexander to bring about your plan. And that you can use people like me or Pastor Bill or you can use people in this, this place to bring about your plan, Lord. Lord, I thank you for just being our God and that we can just be in awe of who you are. And Lord, I pray that anybody that doesn't know you, that is not in awe of you right now, that they would, that they would humble themselves, that they would surrender themselves. And that you, Lord, would be the one, that you would be the king of their life and they would be in awe of who you are and the type of king you are because you are a different kind of king. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.